Well, hello there, listeners. It's Susie New here from the Australian Society of Anesthetists, and welcome to our podcast. It's called Australian Anesthesia, and it's where we talk all things relevant to anesthesia in Australia. You know, over the years, I've been asked a number of times about what it's like to be an anesthetist and how to become one. So in this episode, the tables have been turned and I have Chow, a high school student from Melbourne, who's asking me those questions. For the anaesthetists out there who are listening, I hope I have done you proud. Early in our conversation, I make the important distinction about a specialist anaesthetist compared to the other types of professionals who are delivering anaesthesia services in Australia. So I'm speaking during this interview as someone who is a specialist anaesthetist, but bear in mind there are general practitioners who provide anaesthesia, there are general doctors who don't have specialist training in anaesthesia, and there's also dentists who give sedation. I just make that point for people who think that it's important to be treated by a specialist, to not always assume that the person that you are seeing is a specialist, and I encourage you to seek someone's qualifications if you're unsure. I hope that the person that you're trusting your life with under anesthesia is also going to be comfortable providing that information to you. All right. And for the students out there, whether you be in high school or medical school, I hope you find this useful. Thanks for taking the time to be interested in our specialty. All right. Let's get into it. All right. Great. Well, fire away. (laughs) So first, I'd just like to um, know what the education was like. So how did you actually become an anaesthetist? (laughs) Anaesthetist or anesthesiologist. So globally, those two terms are interchangeable in case you were wondering better because a lot of people get caught up on the pronunciation. Yeah. So in Australia, all specialist anaesthetists are medical specialists. So it means we've been to medical school first and then taken on uh, specialist training. There are some anesthesia providers that are GPs, so general practitioners, who's then done some extra training in anesthesia. And there's also some doctors who haven't got any specialist training who also do provide anesthesia. And then finally, there's also dentists who can do extra training and then be able to give sedation for dental procedures. The training to become a GP anesthetist or a dental sedationist is much shorter than that's required to become a specialist anesthetist. And as I said, there's some doctors who haven't got any specialist qualifications who are also providing anesthesia. So I just wanted to make that important distinction because most people assume that they're having a specialist anaesthetist look after them, but there are different professional people who are providing anaesthesia services in Australia. So for specialist anaesthetists, we've all been to medical school. So you learn medical biology, anatomy, physiology, those sorts of subjects. And then the clinical subjects are where you start applying that theory to working with patients. So that's how it was structured when I studied. Now, in a lot of places, you do an um, undergraduate degree first. It does vary around the country. Some universities take students directly from high school. Some will take them after you've done an undergraduate degree, and some will also take lateral entry, which is where you start one degree. And then if your marks are good enough, you can transfer across into medicine. If you're really, really keen, mm-hmm. it's always worth doing some research and finding out what are the pathways into each university's medical school program. Were you prepared for like the clinical part of the degree? Oh, look, it's going back a long way for me. I went in as a direct entry student. So, you know, you're 17, 18 when you first start going into university and then you're in your early 20s when you first start seeing patients. 
And, and I reflect back now and I think this natural tendency to always think of the cringeworthy moments in your career. <laughs> That's just natural. And there's definitely times I think when I was interacting with patients when I, I just didn't have that worldliness. But thankfully, you're very well supported, I hope, I hope, as a medical student. And I really see the difference now when I have the medical students in theatre who have been clinicians before, just their familiarity of how to talk with patients, how to work with patients, you know, it's there. But I think you do catch up. So it's, it's not like that's necessary in, in order to get to medical school. I say, having said that, I think it is quite competitive getting into medical school and Mm -hmm. I haven't really worked a lot with people trying to get in, uh, but I do know, you know, they do look at things like your experience in the community, for example. Those sorts of things might help on your CV when you're first getting into medical school. How long did it actually take for you to become an anaesthetist? So, as I said, you have to be a doctor first. I think it's eight years if you do the postgraduate pathway. I think some places are still doing five years, six years. So however long it takes you to do medical school. Uh, Once you finish medical school, you then are given what's called provisional registration. So it's a little bit like when you get your P plates when you've got your driver's license. It's same P, provisional registration. And so that's to do your intern year. There's set things that you need to do as an intern. You need to do a certain amount of time working in a surgical unit, a medical unit, and in the emergency department. At least that's what it was when I went through. You had to do all of them, regardless of your specialization. That's right. It's seen as a year, I suppose, to consolidate all the things that you've learnt at medical school and start working right. in a supervised area. You're based in a hospital, so all intern jobs are hospital-based jobs. And then after your intern year, you then go into resident medical officer roles uh, or pre-vocational medical education trainees, so PMETs. Or, yeah, so there's different ways of talking that, and different states will call them different things, but you're basically called a resident. If you've watched any of the American medical shows, residency is different in America compared to what it is in Australia. In those years, you're seen as a junior doctor. You're not yet on the specialist training program. So in anesthesia, you need to do at least two years. So you do your intern year plus one other year, and that's the minimum before you can apply to get on the training program. Because it's quite competitive, most people take three years, uh, especially in the bigger cities like Melbourne and Sydney, that you take three years and then you can apply to join the training program. And then once you're on the training program, it's five years of training. Uh, There's a pretty significant exam at the start of that. And then there's also another exam at the end of that. So by the time you do eight years of medical school, three years of intern plus two years of residency, then you're five years of anaesthetic training. It's about 16 years by the time you finish high school to becoming (laughs) a fully qualified anaesthetist. (laughs) It's a long haul, but it's very similar to a lot of the other specialty training programs as well. Surgery, obstetrics, general practice, they're all four, five, six years of training and you can't get straight into them straight after medical school. So before you start the training program for anaesthesia, you would just do normal medical specialist like work or... Yeah, so you normally do jobs in a hospital. When you go through hospital jobs, you have certain rotations. Yeah. So you have some time in the emergency department. You could have time on the medical wards, time on the surgical wards. And even in those, there's subspecialty areas. So people start trying to pick the rotations that are going to best align with what they think will help get them into anesthesia. 
And anesthesia is regarded as one of the critical care specialties. And by that, I include emergency medicine and intensive care medicine. So yeah, most people, especially in Melbourne, by the third year out from medical school, they're doing what's called a critical care RMO year. And that's predominantly rotations in emergency medicine, ICU and anesthesia. And so anesthesia, as I understand it, is quite a broad category already. So what are all the jobs related to anesthesia? As in what can you do once you are an anesthetist? Yeah. Yeah. So our primary role is to look after people before, during and after surgery. And then there are areas within that that people can subspecialize in. Yeah. So some people might focus on pain medicine. And that is, again, extra training and extra qualifications so that you can do that. Some people also focus on perioperative medicine. We also share that area with physicians as well. We might get involved with aeromedical retrieval where you can be looking after patients who've been involved in major trauma and bringing them to Mm -hmm. hospital or doing transfer of patients between different hospitals. So, for example, you might have heard with the COVID at the moment, the Alfred's the big COVID streaming centre, which is doing a lot of very advanced ICU techniques. There's one called ECMO. And so if you're working in a more peripheral hospital, you you might need someone like an anaesthetist to transport that patient from another hospital through to somewhere like the Alfred. And then there's things that you might be able to find in whatever specialty Uh, You go into some anaesthetists have got a very big interest in medical education and what we call simulation. So you've got a simulated patient. Some of them are really high fidelity mannequins. And then, of course, there's research, which is, again, applicable to um, any field of medicine. Some people also go into management as well. So you said your role as an anaesthetist was to take care of the patient before, during and after surgery. So could you just elaborate a little bit on that? Yeah, sure. So we might be involved quite early. So once the patient knows that they're going to go for surgery, the surgeon might let us know, particularly if it's a complex patient or they're having complex surgery. We might be involved in those early team decisions about even whether this patient is appropriate to have surgery. They might have so many other comorbidities that this may not be what is really going to be beneficial for them at that time in their life. And then just say we do think that they are able to go ahead for surgery. We might offer suggestions for how to optimize their health prior to surgery, for example, encouraging them to quit smoking or lose weight. We'd also make it involved with describing to them what medications they should and shouldn't take prior to their surgery. And then we would meet them on the day of surgery. Often people are quite anxious. So we're there to be a reassuring voice. Yeah. I think anaesthetists have to be very skilled at meeting people, establishing good rapport and good trust because we're going to be doing some quite invasive things. Having surgery in itself is quite invasive. And then once we anaesthetize them, so we render them unconscious, then they are our sole responsibility because they aren't able to control all the functions that they would normally do if they weren't unconscious and to get them through the surgery as safely and as comfortably as possible. And then once the surgery's finished, it's our job to also wake them up or emerge them from unconsciousness and then return them to recovery where hopefully they're nice and comfortable, nice and warm, looking forward to having something to eat and drink. And then we may be involved with them afterwards as well. So particularly um, for the bigger surgeries in, say, the bigger hospitals, we might be involved in doing what we call an acute pain round, so reviewing them the next day, making sure that they're comfortable, particularly if they've got some sort of uh, complex medication that's helping to keep their pain under control. 
that's the sort of the, the basic nuts and bolts of what we do. That seems like a lot. So did you learn all of this in medical school or during your career? So the model for most specialty training in Australia is an apprentice model. So you definitely don't need to know all of this at medical school. When anesthesia first came to Australia, once you graduated from medical school, you could go and give an anesthetic, but times have changed. You know, anesthetics has become more complex, surgery has become more complex. So you learn it pretty much on the job once you start your anesthetic training, especially in the first uh, six months, first year. It's normally one-to-one training because it is such a huge responsibility rendering someone unconscious. Uh, So we don't give it to someone just here you go. Here's some medications. And then, as I said, you've got to be past that quite significant hurdle of that exam at the start of your training in order to keep going. What is the hardest part about your career? I think the hardest part is working in isolation. When you're training, you get the, as I said, it's often one-to-one training and then you move up and you get less and less supervision as you get more experience as a trainee. And then once you've emerged as a specialist, it's often just you and the surgeon and, of course, the nursing team and other assistants in the theatre. But it's a lot of responsibility to shoulder at times. And so if things are not going well, if there's an emergency, it's completely on your shoulders at that time to handle it. Often the surgeon is busy trying to, you know, manage things from a surgical point of view. Sure, you, we encourage people at those times, you know, call in, phone a friend, get some help. But there are moments when you have sole responsibility for the patient. And I think that is where we can be quite different from other fields of medicine. So the other critical care specialties, emergency medicine, intensive care, often when you've got those really critical moments when you've got a patient deteriorating really rapidly in front of you, you you can often be in a, a team environment where there's other doctors around to help you resuscitate that patient. And yeah. you're not always guaranteed that in anesthesia. On a lighter note, what is the best part about your career? <laughs> Look, I, I love this career. I think it's incredibly satisfying. I think the direct patient care is wonderful. As I said, there's nothing like having, especially a patient who might be a little bit anxious, has got some concerns and you're able to make them feel great about what's going to happen to them. You're able to deliver a really safe anesthetic and you watch them wake up and they're comfortable and it's just gone so wonderfully smoothly. So you get that every day with every patient. So it is really wonderful like that. Going into kind of your lifestyle, what are the hours like and how is your work-life balance. So I think one of the reasons why anesthesia is popular is because we have a lot of control over our work-life balance. You, You can work as much or as little as you like. Some lists are very busy. So we we talk of patients booked onto surgical theater lists. You can work and do a list every day of the week. So you can work five days a week. You can work seven days a week. There's always lots of on call, you know, just because it's the middle of night doesn't mean people don't need surgery. So you can be really busy working into the middle of the night. You can also work part time and just do maybe two or three or four days a week where you're doing lists and some lists might only be half a day. Some might be, you know, a whole 16 hour day or something like that. So you do get a lot of flexibility um, and choice in that. It is early starts though. So most surgeries in the morning start at eight o'clock or eight thirty. Some lists even start at seven o'clock. And because we're in beforehand seeing our patients and we're also setting up the theatre, so we can be at work very, very early. 
So you have complete choice in your work hours? It's a little bit different if you're working in public and in private hospitals. So in public hospitals, you might finish your working day usually at six o'clock and there'd usually be another anaesthetist who's going to come and take over from you. So you can hand over the care of the patient to that anaesthetist and then you go home. Uh, when you're in private, obviously you can't just say six o'clock, it's time for me to go home and I'll leave my patients on the operating table. You've got to be there till the very end and things can run over. You can get surgeries that just take longer than expected. And of course, you're expected to stay there till the end. But generally, you can nominate how many lists you take up. And do you normally have time to, you know, spend with your family or go out with friends or does work generally take the bulk of your time? At this stage, I have time. So I had a very busy last few years because I was president of our professional society, the Australian Society of Anaesthetists. Oh, yeah. That's where I didn't have much time. But now that I've gone back to being a regular anaesthetist, I'm back to seeing my friends and spending more time with my family. Can you walk me through your daily routine or like schedule? Yeah. Okay. So for example, I've got a list tomorrow morning. I would expect that it would start at 8.30, which would mean that's the time I would start anesthetizing my first patient. I would usually start beforehand. So either tonight, if it's a public hospital or if it's in private one week beforehand, I'd be finding out information about my patients. So I'd be finding out what medical problems they have, if they've had anesthetics before, if they had any issues with their anesthetics in what we call a, a preoperative assessment. And then I'd be looking to getting into work, usually about you know, an hour before my list starts, setting up my theatre. So I, we do things like we check our anaesthetic machine, make sure it's working, uh, make sure we've got the medications that we want available, meet with the team, make sure we've got all the equipment that we like. Then we meet the patient face-to-face uh, if we haven't already done so. Again, confirm the medical information that we have about them, maybe ask them any questions, explain the anaesthetic to them. And then we go ahead, bring them into theatre and then get them off to sleep. It's not really sleep, it's rendering them unconscious. But then we're there for the duration of the surgery. And at the end, we wake them up and then we deliver them to recovery. And then we would repeat that over and over. And we do that how many ever many patients there are on that particular operating theatre list. Hopefully have time for a lunch break and then start again and do the same thing in the afternoon. And it can vary as to what sort of surgeries that we're doing. And would you say like every day is quite similar or like every day is like a new thing? In some ways, every day is quite different because every patient's different. And even though you could be doing the same sort of surgery, no patient is the same. So in that way, yeah. there's variety. But we wouldn't always necessarily be doing the same type of surgery every day of the week. So one morning I might be doing tonsils and adenoid surgery for children. So then in the afternoon I might be doing anaesthetics for people needing emergency surgery. And if like the surgeries take you know hours and hours, what do you do in between? Are you always focusing on the patient or do you have some time to just like sit back as well? Yeah, so uh, people like an anesthesia. I'm not sure if it's always the best analogy to flying a plane because if you think about it, taking someone from completely awake in total control of their body to then being completely unconscious to the point where you can do things like you can open up their belly and have a look inside and they won't have a reaction to that. That's a huge change that your body has to go through in order to allow that to happen. So there's a lot that goes on when we're putting people off to sleep. And it's a bit like when pilots are taking off. And then during the surgery, it's what we call maintenance phase. And it's a bit like when pilots are at cruising altitude. 
We're scanning the environment, we're adjusting the anaesthetic, we're taking into account what's happening with the surgery. And then as we're getting close to the end of surgery, then we start preparing the patient for waking up. And it's a bit like when pilots are preparing the plane for landing. Uh, So again, it becomes a very busy time for us until we've safely woken the patient up again. Yeah, okay. I think that's a good analogy, actually. I think I can understand that better. (laughs) And how hard is this job on your mental health and your well-being? I think in Australia, anaesthetists have got overall really good well-being, which is great. We have done a lot of work in well-being for doctors and particularly well-being for anaesthetists. But I know that in the US, male anesthesiologists, have got the highest rate of death by suicide compared to other professions. Oh. Yeah. So there's a couple of things in that. Well, there's more than a couple of things. There's many, many things in that. There is that issue, as I said, is you are the sole person often caring for this patient. Obviously, the surgeon's involved in making the decision to take this patient to, to surgery, but you're also involved in that decision as to agreeing to take this patient to surgery. It is a lot of responsibility that really can, I think, impact people. So we are lucky in Australia that we, I think, have got really good work conditions. And that's a lot of the work that the society that I was president of really works very hard to try and make sure that those good work conditions stay. What kind of personal what kind of mindset should you have to actually take on this career? That's a good question. I, I often get asked <laughs> about whether it takes a certain person or a certain personality type to be an anaesthetist. Yeah. I think particularly for the younger, maybe less confident, particularly women, kind of feel that they have to act a certain way, that they have to be seen as this you know, very precise, diligent, analytical mind you know, love science, can apply it. And yes, you you do need to be able to study the science and apply it. But I do think it takes all types of personalities to be an anaesthetist. So I, I often discourage people from saying that they're the wrong personality type. But you definitely do need commitment. Training is difficult. It's a long time. You have less control over your hours. You know, when I was saying before about having choice over your lists and things like that, you don't get that as a trainee. You're working full time. You've got to study for exams. It's often coming at a time in your life when you're thinking about having family and maybe your other half, maybe establishing a career. So it can be a lot of pressures on your life at that time. So it does take commitment, but every medical specialty takes commitment. In terms of anesthesia compared to other areas of medicine, things move quickly in anesthesia. We give a medication, it works within 30 seconds, and then we respond. So you need to want to be able to work at that pace. Compare ourselves to, say, physicians where they might you know, prescribe a medication and bring the patient back for six months' time or three months' time to review the impact of that medication. And that's not the pace that we work at. And so just moving on to tips for, you know, aspiring anaesthetists, what should we do in high school to prepare? So I think you said earlier that volunteering opportunities are a great way to do that. The first thing at high school level is to try and get into medical school. I'm a bit reluctant to give you tips there because it's been so long since I've been involved. But I think definitely speaking to other medical students, working out how other medical schools do their intake, 
it is very increasingly competitive to get into medical school. So doing those things like trying to improve your CV, practice interviewing. I think the next thing is to also just have an open mind and just taking the time to yeah. enjoy all the rotations and see because many, many people go in thinking they're going to become a certain specialist at the end and then they yeah. certainly do change their mind. So just not being too fixed on that one specialization that you were aiming for. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. What would you recommend to research carefully before, you know, deciding on a certain specialty? I think you want to research not just the experience of trainees in that specialty, but specialists in that specialty. So the experiences can be quite different all parts of medicine, really, there is an element of it where you're running a practice and that is effectively running a small business. I remember when I went through medical school, I I was like, I just want to be a doctor. I don't want to be running a practice. And you can do that. You can definitely work in public and you can be employed and work as a doctor, not worry about all those sorts of things. But most people at some stage do start doing a little bit of a practice of some sort. So it's just a small consideration, but I think it's something that people don't necessarily think about when they're choosing their training program. Yeah. They're just thinking about what it's like that day in the hospital. And most medical doctors in Australia don't work in a hospital full time. And that got me thinking. So I'm interested in going overseas to maybe do like a exchange. So is that possible with a medical degree? I think it's possible and I think it's a fantastic thing to do. And I've spent a lot of time in my career working overseas. My first stint overseas was as a medical student. We could do medical electives. So I went to the Cook Islands for eight weeks and it was fantastic. And I learned a lot about tropical medicine. And then there's opportunities as a junior doctor. So with big organizations like MSF, Médecins Sans Frontières, those sorts of organizations. I personally didn't want to go overseas until I was a specialist first. And then I, I went and worked in Fiji and in Cambodia for a few years before returning to Australia. So there's, oh, wow. there's definitely <laughs> a lot of great opportunities. And we're particularly lucky in Australia that we've got a large number of doctors per head of population. There's certainly a lot of countries around the world who don't have that. There's a lot of countries around the world where they don't have medical anaesthetists. Like as I said at the start, to be an anaesthetist in Australia, you need to be a doctor first. But there's a huge global workforce shortage. So plenty of opportunities to go overseas as a doctor. What is something that you wish you had known in high school before going into medical school? I think I wish that I knew more about the different areas of medicine uh, and what they involved. I don't think it was hard to find that out as I went through medical school. There were opportunities. So, for example, I wanted to know what it would be like to be a medical researcher. So one summer I spent some time in one of the laboratories and I did lots of DNA PCR testing, in fact, so <laughs> to see what that was like. All those sorts of things are great experiences. But I remember when I first, as a first year uh, medical student, met with my mentor and she explained she was a physician and I had no idea what a physician was. <sighs> so I, I'm glad you're taking the time to ask these questions and find out a little bit more <laughs> about the specialties. And I'm hoping that this will be useful. I think that's one of the reasons why I'm interested in medicine it's just because like it's so broad and it 
you know, caters to basically exactly exactly and I think one of the great things is that your interests throughout your career can change or you can just pursue one interest that you're completely taken by and you will be a lead researcher cutting edge and defining that area of medicine or you can be a bit interested in this or that or the other and and it moves as your career progresses so yeah Yeah. it's a very rewarding career um so would you say it's like easy to transfer between different specialties? Well, not easy, but possible. It is possible. Most people don't do it because you've invested so much time and energy to firstly get into that particular training program and then to progress through yeah. it. So there are related specialties. So as I said at the start, now with my anesthetic qualification, I could go and study pain medicine, get my qualification, and then I could work as a joint pain physician as well as an anesthetist. And that's a very common joint qualification. If I wanted to say at this stage, turn around and go and do surgery, I have known an anesthetist who actually did do that. But it's it's a really (sighs) big undertaking to then go right back to the start get back on the training program, sit the exams for five years. Right, and then go through all that training, yeah. Okay, I think that is all for my <laughs> questions. Um, it sounds great so far from my talk with well, you today. Well, good luck with your future career. it be interesting to see what happens. Keep in touch, <laughs> let me know you. what happens. <laughs> thank you. Well, um, thank you so much for um, having this talk with me today and I hope that this video is helpful for you know any other student who's interested in going into anesthesia. Great, lovely. Well, thank so, you. No, yeah. thank you for doing this. Well, thank you, Chow, once again for taking the time and the energy and the effort to record this conversation with me. I was very impressed with the professionalism with which she prepared for this chat. Now, I have some very exciting news and that this conversation happened to be recorded on video as well. That's right. It means that the Australian Anesthesia podcast, this podcast, will very soon be coming to you via YouTube as well as all the usual podcast hosting platforms. So please do watch that space. The ASA does have a YouTube channel. You just go to YouTube and type in Australian Society of Anesthetists and there you'll find content from our previous National Scientific Congresses as well as some updates from our committee members. And there might even be some new content in the pipeline. So until then, I hope you've managed to have a bit of a break during this festive season, as well as staying safe out there. This episode of the Australian Anesthesia Podcast was produced by the Australian Society of Anesthetists, otherwise known as the ASA. More episodes can be found on the ASA website, asa.org.au. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive the latest episodes. And of course, you're welcome to share them as widely as you wish. Please send any feedback to the ASA by emailing asa at asa.org.au. Music was by Mark Suss, and we hope you enjoyed listening.